So our reading today is um, Galatians 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory for ever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one you called to live in grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we, pre the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we ask your blessing over Steve and that we can um, delve deeper into what your gospel means for us and for the rest of the world. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kayla. Uh, just before I begin, I just want to um, say thank you to uh, John Holt, also Jonathan Etheridge is not here, for tireless work over this week and weekend uh, to give us a PA system. You may notice some cables here and there. That's because our, our desk decided not to work during the week. Uh, so they, they've done a great job. Thank you, John. Uh, and also to Janet and team, um, having said goodbye to Chris and Viv yesterday, uh, last week, um, I, think, uh, I think she would be very proud of her pupils, uh, what they've done today. <laughs> So uh, we are looking at this letter of Paul to the Galatians over this and the following eight weeks, a series of nine weeks, looking at this letter. And I hope that by the end of this time, you will really know this letter very well and be able to understand it and live within it and share its message with other people with confidence. It's, we're looking at it under the theme of gospel. Uh, just before we uh, look at the first 10 verses, I just need to give you a little bit of background. Um, scholars like to point out the problems, and um, it would be uh, remiss of me not to tell you about the Galatian problem. There we are. What a way to begin. Well, the Galatian problem is simply a question of who are, are the Galatians, in fact, who it, Paul is writing to. And if you look at this map here, um, where's the pointer? Okay, can't find the pointer. Uh, you'll see that there is a kingdom of Galatia uh, to the north, just uh, to the uh, west of Cappadocia. 
But then there is a larger province of Galatia, a Roman province of Galatia. And the question is, who is Paul writing to? Is he writing to the people in the north, in the kingdom of Galatia, who are Galatians ethnically? Oh, by the way, the Galatians are the Celts. The Celts who found their way to Ireland probably gave Linda her reddish hair. I don't know. But uh, they are the Celts. And, uh, or, or is he writing to uh, the people in southern, the southern part of the province of Galatia, uh, those cities of Iconium and Lystra and Derby, where he went on several missionary journeys? And it matters because that helps us to date the letter because Paul didn't go to the north until later. Uh, that would put the letter at maybe A.D. 54. Uh, but if he was writing to the southern Galatians, then that would put it around A.D. 48 or 49. And that impinges on what he says in chapter 2, where he talks about a big conference. And the question is, is that conference the same conference that we read about in Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem, or is it a different conference? And uh, if you want my view, he's writing to the southern people, and it's an early letter, and the conference in Jerusalem hasn't yet happened. But there we are. Okay, you just need to know there's, a, there's, a, there's some questions around that, but you needn't... You don't need to understand the ins and outs of that in order to understand this letter. Now, um, I just, we've got to be thinking about the theme of gospel. So what do we mean by gospel? I'd like to take you back to when you were at school. And it's winter. And there are some snowflakes. And you're thinking, I wonder whether they're going to close school today. Do you remember that? I wonder whether they're going to close school today. And then the whisper goes round that school is shut because of the snow. Now, you may be the sort of very conscientious uh, pupil who would wait until you had confirmation of that announcement from the head teacher, him or herself. Uh, and you just sit dutifully at your desk. Or you may have been a bit more like me, and you'd be thinking, well, of course it means we're off. Let's go and get the sledge. And uh, you'd be out of the gates in no time. The gospel is an announcement, an announcement that changes everything. But just like the announcement about uh, the school being closed because of snow, it only makes a difference if you believe it. If you stay at your desk, you're not going to be, reap the benefits of that announcement. As Paul writes this letter, you can tell from how he speaks that he is that the gospel is contested territory. There are quite a few things going on in this passage which make you think that he has an axe to grind. And the first is his assertive greeting. Uh, by the way, I'm using the uh, New Revised Standard Version. Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authority, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the members of God's family who are with me. This is quite an assertive way of introducing yourself. Paul often describes himself as an apostle, often as a servant, but he goes to great lengths here to say that his 
He is apostle, not because of any human being. He's sent neither by human commission nor from human authority, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He's saying, listen, this announcement that I'm making, this announcement of the gospel, the announcement that changes everything, I didn't get it from the prefects in Jerusalem. I got it straight from the head teacher. And you can believe it. It is true. And he's also goes to lengths to imply at least that, you know, he's not a solo operator. He's sending this letter uh, along with brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, there is a fairly confrontational opening to this letter. Let's just skip to verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let no one be, let that one be accursed. He's very confrontational. He's saying, look, I'm not having it. I'm just not having it. People are coming in and they're giving you a different gospel, a different message. And I'm willing to fight for the truth of the gospel that I proclaim. There are some things which Christians disagree about, and we can agree to disagree. There are some things which are not primary issues. Let's agree they're secondary issues. But when it comes to the gospel, to what is the fundamental good news message of God through Jesus Christ, there is no compromise. Finally, we see that He's bringing a defensive question straight away. Verse 10, am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, Paul has faced the accusation that he is actually making, tinkering with the message of the gospel to make it more appealing for the people that he's talking to. Something's happening. That he's, he's making it more appealing for a, a non-Jewish audience. And so people are saying to him, you know, Paul, the original message, the message that the apostles in Jerusalem are proclaiming is really a message which is an invitation to become honorary Jews. And if Gentiles want to become honorary Jews, that's great. They can do so through Jesus. However... The men need to be circumcised, and there's a whole range of, uh, of cultic practices that they need to embrace. And you, Paul, you're just watering it down because you're saying that the gospel is for everybody and that we, people don't have to enter into those ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Well, he says, that is just not true. I'm not trying to win anyone's approval, except God's maybe. Okay, that's by way of introduction. You can see that Paul is writing in a context of contested space. 
What is the gospel? What is the fundamental message of the Christian faith? Well, I believe it's contained very succinctly in verses 3 to 5, and that is what I want us to focus on. Let's just read those verses together. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Now, I'm just going to go through this almost phrase by phrase because I think it encapsulates the message that Paul felt so strongly about, and it is the fundamental message of the Christian faith. First of all, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Now, this is just a greeting, but it's a very distinctive greeting. It's the greeting that Paul often uses. Because it's the greeting that sums up God's basic disposition towards you. We're thinking a little bit about harvest today. But you know, at the end, at the end of our life, when all our busyness and all the things that we've put so much energy into are stripped away, the one thing that really matters is that we know we're loved. And if you think about it, think about all the things that take up your time and attention. What is the one thing that is really important to you as a human being? It's just to know you're loved. And Paul says, as God looks at you, his basic disposition is of grace and peace. Grace, that undeserved favor towards you. I've got our grandchildren staying with us this weekend. When I look at my grandchildren, my entire disposition towards them is of grace. It's not, will they make it? Will they impress me today? I just love them. There's peace in that disposition. There's no barriers. There's nothing that needs to be done to reconcile the relationship. It's all been done. And that is God's disposition towards you. Sometimes we, you hear people say, God, God delights in you so much, uh, he, he just can't help loving you. He just can't help loving you because you are so wonderful. That's not really the truth. He can't help loving you because he is loving because he is full of grace. It's who he is. I went to the funeral of Bishop Roy Williamson on Friday. And it was full of people who'd been touched by his grace and his love. It wasn't because each of us were particularly special and we were chosen amongst all the people that Roy met. 
as favored ones. It was just that he is a loving person. This is good news. It is really good news. God has a basic disposition towards you, which is of grace and peace. And it goes on to say, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may think that's just a little phrase that's put in, but actually, how do we know that God's disposition towards us is one of grace and peace? The only way we know that is through Jesus. It says at the start of John's Gospel that the law came to us through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. How do we know what God's basic disposition is? Well, we look at Jesus. We look at how he treated people. And we see God. Jesus, the one who reached out to those others rejected. Jesus, the one who sat the children on his knee. Jesus, the one who touched lepers. Jesus, the one who had mercy on a person brought to him caught in adultery. That's what God is like. His grace comes to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, it says, who gave himself for our sins. This is possibly the most remarkable phrase in this little paragraph. That Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Jesus was not just the unfortunate victim of Roman, a miscarriage of justice under the Roman Empire. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Paul is saying something about Jesus in this, which is quite profound. He's saying Jesus is more than you think he is. He's more than just the man who was crucified. He is the eternal son of God who gave himself for our sins. For our sins, for my sins. He gave himself for that thing that I said last week which I so regret. He gave himself for that attitude that I see in myself, which is so ingrained. I see he gave himself for that thing which I would hate you to know about me. He gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. Why? Not just that we may be forgiven, but to set us free, to set us free from the present evil age. This does not mean that Jesus gave himself so that we can all retire from the world and live in a nice, cozy, sterile environment where there are no horrible germs of society. No. He rescued us to come under the rule of God. If you just look ahead to chapter 4, you'll see a little hint at what Paul is talking about. Chapter 4, verse 8. He says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods. Now, however, that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, 
how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? He's saying, if we don't worship God, the true God, we become slave to the, enslaved to the things that we put in his place. And we know that's true. We become enslaved to those things. Because it's, it's in the, only in the service of God that we're actually free. And God came to give, Jesus came to give us freedom. To set us free. To start living now the resurrection life, the, li- the life of the age to come through the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll hear more of this as we go through this letter. And then he goes on to say that all this is according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, there's a bigger story going on than the story of our individual lives. A much bigger story. And God's intervention in the world through Jesus, this great gospel, this announcement that changes everything, is so that you can play your part in that bigger story, the bigger story of God's will, the bigger story of his glory. For Paul and for millions after him, this is the message that changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. Because you see, if you know deep in your heart that you are loved by God, that his disposition to you is grace and truth, that that comes to you through Jesus who gave himself for your sins. So you can be rescued from the forces around us that control us. Well, there's a freedom. There's a joy. There's a peace. And I know that I'm speaking to people who've known this for most of their lives. But I just want to ask you, do you need to know it again? Do you need to come back again to this one fundamental message that changes everything? There are alternatives to the gospel. Here's one. I must try harder. I must try harder. I must try harder. Maybe you've tried that one. Recipe for misery, isn't it? Because it'll never be enough. Or maybe you know this one. Hiding behind a mask. Trying to present your best face. And maybe you know the loneliness and isolation of not being loved because you're not known. Maybe putting on that best face for God himself. In his wonderful book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey um, quotes Henri Nouon. He says this, Grace is shockingly personal. As Henri Nouon points out, God rejoices, 
Not because the problems of the world have been solved. Not because all human pain and suffering have come to an end. Nor because thousands of people have been converted and are now praising him for his goodness. No, God rejoices because one of his children who was lost has been found. And you are the one. And God's love is not like a great reservoir in the sky which is piped out to each of us. God's love for you is unique because you're unique. If, if you ask me, you know, which of your children do you love the most? Well, obviously, I, I can't answer that question. But I do love them slightly differently because they're different. And God's love comes the same way to us through Jesus' self-giving sacrifice. But it is unique. And I want to encourage you today as you take communion, as you receive the bread and the wine, to receive that love again. The love that sets you free. This is the good news. This is the message that changes everything.